Welcome to Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. We are Scott and Maureen Proctor, and today's study is called Be Not Afraid, including Matthew chapters 14 and 15, Mark chapters 6 and 7, and John chapters 5 and 6. There's so much material that we cover every week, and we just do it in such a short amount of time. I hope that you're taking the time to go through all of these things at home with your families. And remember, you can find all of these at ldsmag.com forward slash podcast. And to get an approximate transcript in your email, sign up for Meridian Magazine at that same address, ldsmag.com. Or you can go to your favorite podcast platform and search for Meridian Magazine, Come Follow Me, and it will come up. Now, not all of the moments and sayings in the life of Jesus can be read as a sequence of events. We have stories and sayings that we can't always connect. But in today's study, we can see things in sequence which adds meaning to the story. When Herod died, whom we erroneously call Herod the Great, he was really Herod the Great Builder, his kingdom was divided between four sons who each became tetrarchs, meaning rulers of the quarter part. Herod Antipas was one of these who ruled in Galilee and Perea. Offending the people in his kingdom, he divorced his wife to marry the former wife of his half-brother, Philip. Her name goes down in infamy. It was Herodias. John the Baptist, who was ever bold in speaking the truth, condemned the marriage, and Herodias goaded her husband into imprisoning him. That wasn't enough. She took it further. Her enticing daughter, Salome, was invited to dance before a great feast, and so pleased was Herod that he said, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. This was the moment her mother had schemed for, and she asked that John the Baptist be beheaded, and his head be brought on a charger and given to her. Herod was reluctant to do it, perhaps not for any twinge of conscience, but because he had heard reports of John's spiritual power. In fact, later when he heard of Jesus' many miracles, he thought it was maybe John risen from the dead. One might ask, couldn't John have just stayed quiet and kept his head? Or couldn't the Lord have protected this mighty prophet from a petty tyrant? Elder Jeffrey R. Holland gave a talk called The Costs and Blessings of Discipleship. And there are both. He said, A sister missionary recently wrote to me. My companion and I saw a man sitting on a bench in the town square eating his lunch. As we drew near, he looked up and saw our missionary name tags. With a terrible look in his eye, he jumped up and raised his hand to hit me. I ducked just in time, only to have him spit his food all over me and start swearing the most horrible things at us. We walked away saying nothing. I tried to wipe the food off my face, only to feel a clump of mashed potato hit me in the back of the head. Sometimes it's hard being a missionary, because right then I wanted to go back, grab that little man, and say, Excuse me? But I didn't. And then Elder Holland continues, To this devoted missionary, I say, Dear child, you have in your own humble way stepped into a circle of very distinguished women and men, who have, as the Book of Mormon prophet Jacob said, viewed Christ's death and suffered his cross and borne the shame of the world. Elder Holland continues, Indeed, of Jesus himself, Jacob's brother Nephi wrote, And the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Wherefore they scourge him, and he suffereth it. And they smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, 
and he suffereth it, because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children of men. In keeping with the Savior's own experience, there has been a long history of rejection and a painfully high price paid by prophets and apostles, missionaries, and members in every generation, all those who have tried to honor God's call to lift the human family to a more excellent way. Surely the angels of heaven wept as they recorded this cost of discipleship in a world that is often hostile to the commandments of God. This death of his cousin and the mighty prophet deeply affected Christ and his apostles, so many who have been tied to John. So Jesus invites in Mark chapter 6, verses 31 and 32, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. Remember, we've talked about how great multitudes followed them wherever they went. And so they departed into a desert place by ship, privately. Though the Galilee is small, the fastest way to the other side is still in a boat, rather than around the shore. But the people were not about to let him have rest and peace. Remember, it is a great multitude that is always clamoring for him, and they beat him to the place running afoot, as Mark said. In John chapter 6, verse 2, John adds this detail, telling us why they were so eager. And a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. The Gospels repeat each other, saying that the Savior was moved with compassion on them and heals them. But he is also moved with compassion because as the evening draws on, they are hungry, this regular everyday need. I am comforted to know that the Lord may be moved with compassion for me. Now, what is the number here that are gathered? We are told specifically that it is 5,000 men which means if you add the women and children, there could be 20,000 or more in this crowd. Since John tells us specifically that this is the season of Passover, these could be travelers on the way to Jerusalem, pilgrims, since it was the Jewish religious tradition to return each year at Passover to worship in the temple. And so we read in John 6, verses 5 through 15, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? I love that he cares about that. He understands our mortal condition. We hunger, we tire. He cares. And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. And so they began to gather up what was available. And as it turned out, there was a lad which had five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what were they? among so many. I think it's interesting to note here that barley loaves would have been the food of the poor. These were not expensive loaves. And two small fishes. This is really emphasized to say what a small, small number it was. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. He does this in a very orderly way. And when they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. There are some interesting observations here pointed out by Elder Garrett W. Gong. One, our Savior is compassionate. Two, he starts with what they have. Three, our Savior proceeds in an orderly manner. 
He makes them sit down. He expresses gratitude to his father. He took the loaves and fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and break, Elder Gong taught. Creator of heaven and earth, the king of kings himself gives thanks before he divides the loaves and fishes and multiplies them among them all, as much as they would eat. For our Savior feeds the five thousand and the one at the same time. Five, he ensures that nothing is lost. Six, with our Savior, we end with more than we began. I just have to say, I love the abundance that is shown here. This demonstration that the Lord knows how to give abundantly when we have so little. That's his signature, isn't it? It is. Seven, for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, our Savior teaches and testifies of sacramental abundance. Eight, his is a world of loaves and fishes of abundance, Elder Gong said. In another time, he would feed 4,000 in a similar manner. This was also not lost on this crowd of observant Jews. Jehovah had fed manna to the children of Israel in the wilderness, and now Jesus was multiplying these loaves and fishes for them. This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world, they said. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. They wanted to make him king because they wanted to be fed bread. We have a cultural picture here on the one hand and a picture of humanity on the other. Culturally, these were a people who were oppressed under the hands of the Romans. That means that they are heavily taxed. They are impoverished because they are not free. Some of them are farmers or fishermen that lead a hand-to-mouth existence. Someone who can supply bread is their idea of a king, a messiah. They want their most earthly, practical needs met. And sometimes we're the same. We just want our earthly, practical needs met by God. And when he asks something more of us, like growth and patience, we can be disappointed. I remember many times in our lives praying that the Lord would send us a check for $5,000 by Friday. That's what we needed. We wanted that $5,000. Especially by Friday. Right. And this was on a Monday. And we could see those bills that had to be paid. We could see a house payment that had to be made. We could see all these things piling up. And we just, that's all we could see that we needed was that money. And by Tuesday, we'd be praying even more fervently. And by Wednesday, we had an idea. But it wasn't money. It was just a new idea. And it was something that led us to something that gave us growth and gave us the things that we really needed over the long term. We saw that many, many times. When he fed the 5,000, the crowds had pressed him, wanting more bread, following him on foot, plying him with requests. And as he so often did, he retreated to a mountain apart to be with his father. Meanwhile, the apostles were on the Sea of Galilee when a storm arose, creating boisterous, threatening waves. Based on Matthew 14, we often tell this story in terms of Peter's attempt to walk on the water and then his sinking with fear in the storm, a little like we are all tempted to do when waves dash at us. But something else is particularly noteworthy in this story. Jesus had departed into a mountain and was alone on the land, but, quote, he saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. Saw them though he was not close by, saw them, though it was the fourth watch. Now let me say for a minute, what is a watch? 
The Jews, like the Greeks and Romans, divided the night into military watches instead of hours, each watch representing the period for which sentinels or pickets remained on duty. Now, during the Roman period, there were four watches during the night, and so the fourth watch was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. This is a time when the Lord might have been sleeping, but their exertion against the waves did not escape him. Coming down from the mountain, he walked across the water to them because they needed him then. And what did he say? Quote, be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. I am here for you in your desperate hour. I have seen you when you need help. In a desperate moment, there is the Lord saying, it is I. That is another way to say, here I am, or here am I. Here am I is not a random saying, but we learn in scripture that it is in fact a code phrase that signifies a covenant relationship. It means we are bound together by covenant. This covenant creates for us a relationship of mutual trust. The Lord says that because we are in a covenant together, we have a grasp on his hand, not a slippery grasp or a fickle one, but a firm one. Here am I is the phrase the two parties in a covenant use to answer one another. The Lord promises, I will come unto you. And the mortal beings reply, I believe you will come. We speak often of the promises that come with having made a covenant with the Lord. But is there anything really more important than the simple assurance that we find in Isaiah 58 verse 9? Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. In fact, when the Lord gives the covenant promises to Abraham, with which we are so familiar, promises of posterity, priesthood, a promised land, and more, he prefaces all of this with an overarching promise that says, essentially, I am here for you. He says, My name is Jehovah, and I know the end from the beginning. Therefore, my hand shall be over thee. It is this context in which we understand the rest of the covenant. If we misunderstand this assurance, we may cast ourselves in shivers of insecurity in this life, but knowing it, we can be secure. What is that saying you always said to your institute students? I always used to say to them, we're not insecure here in mortality. We only think we are. I love that. The very creator of the universe won't keep us cooling our heels while he takes another appointment or forgets our names. We call and he answers. He is neither aloof nor indifferent. I am frightened, we say. Here am I, he answers. I am alone. Here am I, he says. My life did not comply to the script I had so perfectly designed for it. Here am I, he assures. It is I. Be not afraid. Most of all, we examine the enormous chasm that separates us from home and from him, and he stretches out his arm and says, Here am I. We can cross this together. He is the firm, steadfast, and immovable one, the one who announces that he is I am. And with covenants in place, that is our foundation, eternally present, eternally now. Here am I. This assuring phrase is a familiar one that rings from the pre-mortal world. And the Lord said, Whom shall I send? And one answered, Like unto the Son of Man, Here am I. Send me. With all the personal risks associated, he said, Here am I. This has been our anchor from before time, before memory. 
That assurance continues in this scripture. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord. That's in Jeremiah chapter 28, verses 11 through 14. And a favorite scripture of ours. Could he be more clear? We will have an expected end if we keep our covenants. If we seek him, we will find him. There will be no change of administration with him. He will not be only a fair-weather friend. He will not feel after us only when we are perfect, for we have been born into a place where that is a standard beyond us. Instead, when we have covenanted with him, his answer to us is, Here am I. Whether we are on the Sea of Galilee or the seas of heartbreak and storm in our own lives, it is I, he says, be not afraid. Yet we have to admit so often we are afraid. Our children get lost. The bills won't be paid. We're sick. Our seas are rough. Can we trust the Lord so we don't have to be afraid? Elder Holland said, quote, I submit to you that may be one of the Savior's commandments that is, even in the hearts of otherwise faithful Latter-day Saints, almost universally disobeyed. And yet I wonder whether our resistance to this invitation could be any more grievous to the Lord's merciful heart. End of quote. We may think of a phrase like, let not your heart be troubled, as a word of comfort, a comforting pat on the back from a loving parent. But a commandment? Doesn't that seem a little hard, in fact, almost impossible? What could be more natural than to be troubled or frightened when distress can come upon us at any moment and we swallow it in like seawater, gulping for life? Why not be afraid? After all, we live in a world where we are always at the mercy of thousands of forces that are far beyond our control and yet impact our lives dramatically. Tomorrow is dim and subject to surprises that disappoint and burn. We cannot prepare well enough to sidestep them. It is not surprising that we may not feel entirely safe. After all, we didn't choose to be on edge and on the line. Isn't it just part and parcel of the mortal condition? When we came to mortality, weren't we just cast into a whirlpool of uncertainty? So how can we be commanded to be neither troubled nor afraid? Isn't that just a lot to ask? Sometimes I feel like that. Elder Holland continues explaining why our living in a fearful or anxious state would grieve the Lord. Quote, I can tell you this as a parent. As concerned as I would be if somewhere in their lives one of my children were seriously troubled or unhappy or disobedient, nevertheless, I would be infinitely more devastated if I felt that at such a time that child could not trust me to help or thought his or her interest was unimportant to me or unsafe in my care. In that same spirit, I am convinced that none of us can appreciate how deeply it wounds the loving heart of the Savior of the world when he finds that his people do not feel confident in his care, or secure in his hands, or trust in his commandments. What Elder Holland suggests here is that anxious, overwrought living is a manifestation that we do not understand the very nature of God and his personal, intimate care of us as his child. Oh, we may be able to give lip service to his attributes, reciting his characteristics of loving kindness with the best of them in Sunday school class, but it is in the hollow chambers of our own soul that we must make that knowledge soul deep. It is when life presents us or our loved ones with the challenges that harrow the heart 
that we are left having to come straight up against it. Is God who he says he is, and am I safe, or have I only been giving lip service to a beautiful idea? We truly have to know God's attributes in our bones. Elder Holland again, just because God is God, just because Christ is Christ, they cannot do other than care for us and bless us and help us if we will but come unto them, approaching their throne of grace in meekness and lowliness of heart. They can't help but bless us. They have to. It's their nature. End quote. The world is an anxious place, but that is because most of us two-legged creatures roaming here have forgotten him, amnesiac about his nature. He tells us not to fear as an expression of the nature of our relationship with him. We have to trust that he is able to do his own work. He is watchful, not careless. His memory is everlasting, not spotty. His notice penetrates to our individual level and he cannot do otherwise. Some have suggested that the apostles might have been rowing a long time in this storm, since it is the fourth watch when the Lord comes. It is true that though the Lord is helping us, he invites us to develop our strength and to grow. In verse 28 of Matthew 14, Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. So we're back to Peter coming out of the boat at his bidding. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. Some fault Peter for beginning to sink. But he's the only totally mortal person that we know of who's ever walked on water at all. It's pretty impressive. I'm impressed. What is important is that as long as Peter had an eye focused on Christ, he was able to do something remarkable. But it was when the boisterous wind came that he became afraid. And he focused on it. That's right. So Paul tells us in Hebrews 10, Cast not away therefore your confidence. Elder Holland again said this, After you have gotten the message, after you have paid the price to feel his love and hear the word of the Lord, go forward. Don't fear. Don't vacillate. Don't quibble. Don't whine. With the spirit of revelation, dismiss your fears and wade in with both feet. In the words of Joseph Smith, brethren, and I would add, sisters, shall we not go on in so great a cause? Go forward and not backward. Courage and on, on to the victory. Now it's after the feeding of the 5,000 and after the people clamor to make him king that Jesus gives the bread of life speech in the synagogue at Capernaum. He is teaching them that there is a more lasting way to be fed and to drink. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Then they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, in verse 29, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. So he's pleading with them to believe in him, who he is, as the Messiah. He has more to give them than just bread. He's giving them this bread of life, which is a spiritual thing, which will give them eternal life. And Jesus said unto them, in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. They don't understand what he says. They don't understand his meaning, and so they say to him, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How is it then that he saith, I come down from heaven? For I came down from heaven, in verse 38, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. An interesting thing happens after this sermon on the bread of life. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They wanted favors and not doctrine. They wanted food more than salvation. And then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Those words, will ye also go away, really ring in my heart. And I think about that often. Elder M. Russell Ballard gave a wonderful talk about this called, To Whom Shall We Go? He said that same situation that existed then exists today. Today is no different. For some, Christ's invitation to believe and remain continues to be hard or difficult to accept. If any one of you is faltering in your faith, I ask you the same question that Peter asked. To whom shall you go? Where will you go to find others who share your belief in personal, loving, heavenly parents who teach us how to return to their eternal presence? Where will you go to be taught about a Savior who is your best friend, who not only suffered for your sins, but who also suffered pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, so that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities, including, I believe, the infirmity of loss of faith. Elder Ballard continues, Where will you go to learn about Heavenly Father's plan for our eternal happiness and peace, a plan that is filled with wondrous possibilities, teachings, and guidance for our mortal and eternal lives? Remember, the plan of salvation gives mortal life meaning, purpose, and direction. Where will you go to find a detailed and inspired church organizational structure through which you are taught and supported by men and women who are deeply committed to serving the Lord by serving you and your family? Where will you go to find living prophets and apostles who are called by God to give you another resource for counsel, understanding, comfort, and inspiration for the challenges of our day? Where will you go to find people who live by a prescribed set of values and standards that you share and want to pass along to your children and grandchildren? And where will you go to experience the joy that comes through the saving ordinances and covenants of the temple? There really is no other place. We have no place to turn except for the Lord. Thanks for being with us today on this podcast. Next week's lesson is entitled, Thou Art the Christ which is Matthew chapter 16 and 17, Mark chapter 9, and Luke chapter 9. And thanks to Paul Cardall for that music that begins and ends this podcast. We love it. Tell your friends about this podcast. Put it on social media. See you soon. Bye-bye.